This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Vadim Smelyansky, who is a principal scientist for physics-based methods in the Exploration Technology Directorate at NASA Ames Research Center. During his tenure at NASA, he has been the principal investigator on several projects funded by NASA and other government agencies. Vadim, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Can you, uh, just to start us off, can you talk about uh, a project or projects that you're working on now? Yes. So, as a principal scientist in physics-based methods, I oversee a number of activities uh, that require uh, this approach. And uh, one of them is uh, historically the biggest one, uh, was uh, related to critical physics-based analysis of uh, failure mode development and fault management, as well as uh, assessment of various risks in an integrated vehicle environment. Mm -hmm. So basically, when you have a flying rocket and uh, certain things happen in the rocket, uh, which are characterized as uh, abnormal behavior, the root causes of that and the consequences and the timing and uh, the instrumentation that is needed to detect and algorithms that are needed to predict and diagnose and isolate are all based in physics, on physics. However, unlike the traditional physics disciplines where somebody is doing uh, composite materials or structural mechanics, and somebody is doing electromagnetics, and somebody is doing computational fluid dynamics, in a situation of a complex, if you will, cyber physics environment or an integrated physics environment, integrated vehicle environment, where mechanical propulsion, electromagnetical instrumentation systems are all tied together. Mm-hmm. And there is not such possible software code that would integrate all this multi-physical thing, multi-physics simulations, in one coherent fashion, uh-huh. simply because uh, there is a too many interfaces, it's a huge inhomogeneity of physics processes, variety of times, spatial scales, and uh, diversity of those processes. It's like essentially trying to describe a human being through one physics model that couples on one time, on one hand, mechanics of your motion and what happens in the brain down to the neuron level. That's simply not possible. Mm-hmm. So when you want to capture the underlying uh, physical phenomena, it's a critical physics analysis that steps in. On one hand, critical physics analysis always answers the question that looks like a puzzle. If something happens, why? You really need to develop an intuition and combine things together. I don't want to, you know, step into the situation describing the failure modes, but I can only say that if, for example, you have an explosion, right, you want to know whether the explosion is a catastrophic or simply a fire. Well, unfortunately, the example of Challenger is one example, and a uh, number of ingredients that contribute to the strengths and prognosis of the explosion are enormous, and they happen on a very small scale. However, what happens on a very small scale, like a cavitation, uh, for example, is determined by the motion of a very large microscopic parts. 
for example, a fire in the engine and part of it flies, you know, gets into the liquid, uh, liquid fuel tank. So that's one project that we do. It's rather not one project, it's a variety of different projects that support space line systems, that support uh, in-space autonomy through the cryogenic propellant loading, and other applications. So that's one, and we have a number of theoretical physicists, engineers, computer science, working together in that aspect. When you say, uh, you mentioned abnormal behavior, uh, what, what do you mean by that? What else can uh, be analyzed and detected with this physics-based approach? So uh, abnormal behavior uh, is something uh, that happens in the engineering system either due to the malfunction of com engineering components or due to the abnormal external conditions. So one of the examples of the quote-unquote abnormal behavior is when you send a fluid to load a fuel tank through some pressurization procedure and spontaneous nucleation and uh, vapor formation in excessive fashion happens somewhere in a pipe. Mm -hmm. So when this happens, uh, essentially you're losing your liquid. Your liquid is transferred into the vapor. So you have a vapor blockage. What does that mean? That means that somewhere in a, inside of the pipe, and pipe could be long. Pipe could be, you know, uh, tens of yards, for example. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in, in the middle of that pipe, in a location that is not known to you, and it's not immediately, you know, obviously with a limited number of sensors how to determine that location, you have a portion of liquid completely converted to a vapor. Now it's quite clear that if you keep pressurizing that pipe, instead of moving nicely liquid along the pipe, vapor will compress. That means you are losing controllability. Now when the vapor is compressing, you will have a lot of complex phenomena happen. And uh, at the very least, you are not filling your tank. At the worst, you can have explosive nucleation when a large portions of the liquid begin uh, doing a phase transition, converting to a vapor with a huge rises in pressure. That could happen in a pipe. This could happen in a tank after months. And this is just one example of a pretty mundane you know, a situation that can quickly grow to buy stability to, to explosive situation. Well, another example, which I already mentioned before, is an explosion. For example, people know about Challenger. Mm -hmm. People know that there was a fire. I mean, not a lot of people who pay attention to that actually realizes that fire in the village. Most of the people know that the catastrophe in Challenger occurred because of the uh, case breach uh, that occurred in a solid rocket motor at the, at the, at the bottom, uh, at the lower part of the solid rocket motor, and that case breach created essentially a hot gas flow that punctured uh, the liquid engine tank. Now, most of the people assume that because it's a hot gas, it punctured a liquid engine tank, that was an explosion. And in fact, that was not. A careful physics analysis of the situation, careful observation of the data shown to people that, in fact, explosion occurred some 30 meters above at the point where the solid rocket tank was mounted to, uh, to the rocket, to the core stage of the rocket, to the portion where the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen tanks actually connect with each other. So what happens? Because of the rocket, solid rocket loss of stability, the mount point disintegrated 
and there was a rupture of hydrogen and oxygen tank. So both liquids, I emphasize, are cold liquids that were very far away from the ignitions, from the hot gas uh, uh, flow that, lost the, that caused the loss of mechanical stability in the first place. Those two cold liquids essentially collide with each other and collide with the surface of the solid rocket motor. Now that caused the fire. Mm -hmm. In fact, that caused the fire because of the cavitation events that happens at the collision of the two streams of oxygen and hydrogen with the surface of the solid rocket motor. So that was a cold explosion. And in fact, that, why that explosion caused the fire as opposed, for example, to a more powerful deflagration or even more powerful detonation, that is a question that really has to do with the microscopic analysis with the delicate analysis of what happens with the sub-millimeter size, you know, bubbles that collapse and cavitate and create this huge pressure and give rise to ignition that on one hand can either cause detonation or could be impeded, you know, by the lack of fuel around and cause a simple fire. Those things which are very delicate is where I feel physics-based analysis plays a huge role. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, what? a Feynman kind of approach to engineering. What what is a new uh, technology that you're that you're working on currently or designing uh, to help with uh, with these types of analyses and, and challenges? So uh, let me answer this question in two ways. So uh, the technology which we do, the end product of what we do, is an analysis itself. Is the predictions and recommendations and uh, modeling and conclusions based on those models, what will work and what will not work in uh, vehicles, in uh, engineering vehicles. And also a technology which we, and those things are we doing uh, for space line system, we have been doing this before for constellation, we had some acknowledgement in the form of award for doing that for constellation era. We also, uh, as a form of technology, develop a physics-based approach to autonomy, to in-space autonomy, where the technology constitutes essentially online running models with, with a model-based diagnostics capability. It's a smart software that understands the physics of the system at hand and interprets the signals coming from that system in the way that allows, with a very small number of observations, in a fairly complex systems, makes robust prediction. Examples are cryogenic propellant loading. We are working with a uh, uh, number of teams, some of them at Ames, uh, led by Ann Patterson, Heinz, and uh, Kai Gobel, and also uh, with the team led by Barbara Brown in Kennedy. And uh, those are the autonomous operations which are there. I must also mention that in uh, Marshall, we have a very good uh, collaborations, especially with Mike Watson, who I believe was at the beginning, you know, of the thinking of engineering systems as essentially a complex physical of fault management in engineering systems as the complex uh, physics, you know, discipline. So those are our technologies. I try to kind of outline quickly. However, let me move forward and uh, answer your question in a second way as a promise. So there is another activity, fairly nascent activity that started at Ames about a year ago. 
that has to do with a very different technology uh -huh. that has to do with the quantum computing, which is harvesting of the power of quantum mechanics to enable uh, computation to solving NASA problems, computational problems, for example, in a way uh, whose power cannot even be compared in any usual metrics with, uh, with classical computation. While this technology is in the very beginning, and you know, a lot of groups in the world, in, in, in the United States, including IBM and academia, and uh, Microsoft has been doing development of uh, this in part. While they were all doing uh, this quantum computing research targeted on uh, development of a, of a fully blown, completely uh, universal quantum computer, which is about 20 years away. Uh, NASA has focused on investing uh, research time in the, I would say, uh, research time and, and, and experimentation time into studying uh, the quantum computers of today, which one example being a D-Wave machine, that really doesn't work as a standard computer that you have in your, uh, in your desk. And, uh, and you know, future quantum, fully fault-tolerant standard quantum computer uh, that will be developed in 20 years will be analogous to what you have on a desk. It will be just way more powerful. It will be analogous in a way it performs operations uh, as a gate. And NASA is involved in uh, experimenting with a quantum computer that doesn't do it. Then more reminds of the analog machines of and analog proposals for computation in 50s and 60s, except the analog being, you know, a physical device that does something, right, that implements a process uh, with input and output. And the input into that process is a formulation in some form uh, optimization problem in our case, specifically, say, discrete, a binary optimization problem. And then this, uh, this, this, this engine, this quantum engine, is composed of quantum elements called spins or, or, or quantum bits, however you like, that are coupled to each other in a, in a concerted fashion, displaying some distinctly quantum behavior. And essentially, that quantum engine operates in, a, I would call, a homeostatic fashion. That's what I believe D-Wave, uh, which is a company in Canada that produces those machines, uh, its best characterization. It basically maintains itself close to its lowest energy state, its quantum mechanical lowest energy state. And then it morphs from the, basically, it morphs from the, uh, from the system where whose ground, whose en lowest energy state is very easy to prepare and fairly generic, to another system whose lowest energy state reflects uh, the solution of the classical computational problem at hand. So this homeostatic evolution uh, and that last state, which reflects the solution of the classical problem at hand, knows about the classical inputs which you put into that system. And then at the very end, you do the measurement and you recover the results. So uh, this computation, while only currently involves 512 qubits, has a huge potential. We already see you know, a very small problems that are nevertheless fairly difficult for quantum computing, for classical computing, sorry, that in fact could be uh, solved by quantum computers.
Right. And uh, this is active area of research. It addresses many practical NASA applications. From planning and scheduling, we collaborate with uh, Jeremy Frank, who leads autonomous mission operation project in AAS. Uh, he's, one, he's a PI. And it involves planning and scheduling uh, of, uh, we try to apply that technology to lunar perspective mission to try to help with autonomous planning of the, you know, of the rovers on the moon. We are trying to apply it uh, to different technologies with scheduling, navigation, and all that. This also has to do potentially with many other applications. As a fault management, as I said before, if you have a complex network, and that complex network has some faults. There is a combinatorial number of, of possibilities that uh, the same sensor data, you know, could potentially lead. Uh, so you need to pin down a unique possibility, the most consistent with existing sensor data. And that is a very difficult computational task, and we are applying, we are applying uh, quantum computing to that. And one of the future tasks where we plan to apply quantum computer is analysis of the national air, airspace system where you actually have to have optimal control of the what few hundreds a uh, few uh, tens of thousands 56,000 airplanes that at the real time has to you know do air traffic control accommodate for delays and you know create a system response in real time a very hard optimization problem so there are many other examples uh, robotics to be one of them among them and others. So this is where, and I, I must mention also ecology, by the way, because uh, intelligent analysis of the data, right, reconstruction of certain features and properties, like a leaf area index, you know, or certain shapes of the lakes or craters, for example, now I'm talking, of course, not Earth, are very, from a complex imagery, would be a very interesting task for a quantum computer. So those are the new technologies that we are doing right now. I think I gave more or less fair description. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you mentioned the, the 512, the qubit machine. Um, what are your biggest um, technical challenges in, in, in getting that uh, up and running? So the biggest uh, technical challenges is that this machine being a very early generation of uh, this uh, quantum computing machine does not have a very good programmability property. To program that system, uh, depending on, it's basically an art, because you have optimization problem that doesn't really look, I mean, the internal geometry of that problem, the connectivity between bits in, in your problem that you want to solve, doesn't really look close as a connectivity of the qubits inside of that machine. So you need to do a graph embedding. You need to embed one graph, graph of your problem you want to solve, into another graph, graph representing the connectivity of the hardware. Those embeddings are not automatic at this point, and some of them can be efficient, some of them not. Non-efficient embeddings would include, you know, a lot of additional qubits to embed a fairly small problem. So, of course, given that the size of the overall quantum machine is limited right now, 512 qubits, that may severely limit, depending on the art, you know, and the skill and success and luck, if you will, may severely limit what practical applications you can actually solve. So we may need to wait until the machine become, you know, 2,000, 8,000 qubits before that can really address a broad variety of applications. But finding those applications, where embedding could be done in a successful way 
is our biggest challenge. Our second challenge is to do a hardcore physics research to actually understand the power of that machine. And one, one might say, why this is a NASA problem, right? Why not academia work on that problem? That looks like a fundamental question. However, uh, the point is that the limitations of performance of the quantum machine given by as I mentioned, connectivity, also given by the effects of noise that destroy the coherence, right? The quantum coherence of the operation of the machine. And many other uh, physics coming limitations coming from quantum mechanical tunneling, if you will, and all that. Those limitations are different. They work differently for different types of applications. So if we want to know how that works for applications that NASA cares, this is where we should do research and understand uh, those limitations and perhaps suggestions how to change the architecture in the future to circumvent some of them. So that's why we have to do in some way that research as well. And actually, just to, to wrap it up, what, is, what do you consider to be the most exciting um, possibilities with your work? So there are two possibilities. Uh, one of them is that I believe I want to make sure that uh, quantum computing computer that we have right now will be able to solve some of the hard NASA problems that would make a difference for NASA operation. And of course, that's a challenge because the problem needs to be relatively small in size, yet relatively hard in solution. And on the other hand, it also has to be very relevant to NASA. So finding this interplay is a very big scientific challenge. It's an early research in that machine. And making a breakthrough with programmability which is a quantum computer science issue. So that's one possibility, huge possibility, if we can explore it and achieve that goal. Second possibility, in my kind of opinion, uh, which is not related to quantum, but very, very, in my view, breathtaking, is uh, ability to inject physics-based analysis into the smart, autonomous, typically in-space system operation, where we can really do what you know military call fly-by-wire, because, you know, uh, butterflies sometimes cannot fly until they explore the motion of the flow, right, of the air. Mm -hmm. And uh, complex military airplanes, does not, especially with a stealth capability, do not have a very good hydrid, uh, you know, fluid dynamics uh, uh, properties that allows to easily control. So you need to do electronic autonomous control, responding to the events. And I would like to have that fly-by-wire capability with uh, in-space operations, be it a cryogenic propellant loading, solar electric, or others. So having this would require, in a way, breaking NASA mentality, which would, uh, you know, go, I will go very far from what is discussion if I try to describe that. But I believe we need to inject way more of this Feynman type of Feynman type approach uh, that would benefit us in autonomy in space. Feynman type meaning looking for the core of physics phenomena and benefiting and leveraging on that by reducing instrumentation, by reducing the software, by increasing the robustness. And that's where my second challenge is. Well, Dr. Vadim Smolensky, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us here at NASA Tech Review.